Hi, I'm Kyla. And this is Jay. And you're listening to Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. Welcome back to listeners. How are you? Uh, we're still in the midst of one of my <laughs> favorite months, other than, of course, July, because July is my birth month. But I, but October, the Halloween season, uh, Doc, my mother, <laughs> so Chad, it was like 10 o'clock at night. My mother brings me, because I've been asking her, like, well, you know, we were kids, my mother used to always decorate for Halloween. Remember, you know, you heard stories mm-hmm, about, about when, Halloween yeah, parties when, when somebody and... came up to you on UFO's campus and was like, Jay's mom threw the best parties. So, but, you know, since our kids are grown, she doesn't really decorate the yard for anything other than really Christmas. But, okay. you know, but I guess she's gotten into the Halloween spirit because you saw that she bought my niece and nephew that big old pumpkin. That's yeah, it's, it's a doll. <laughs> yes. It's a huge pumpkin in front of your sister. Yeah, well, they just moved around the corner. brother's house, yes. My mother so went cute. to Brown County, which is a place here in Kentucky that's like a big shopping, I guess, especially for seniors. And she comes back with this big, like, gigantic yard pumpkin. But I'll just say this. So she comes the other night with, like, a Kroger bag full of, like, Christmas lights but they're Halloween lights and she's like Jay can you please like decorate the awning and I'm like you know it was like 11 o'clock at night and it was freezing cold I was really happy that she's now uh, in the Halloween spirit so, so cute. Uh, listeners hopefully you are too anyway uh, let's get to it so Doc it was interesting like twice in the past few weeks people on Twitter have been like oh my goodness I had no idea that you all are based in Louisville. I know. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, we rep Kentucky all the time. You know, <laughs> this is my favorite city and my favorite state. Yeah. But, but so we're going to talk a little bit more about, about Louisville because that's what I love to do. And so I'm super excited for today's guest who um, is a historian, uh, is a local LGBTQ uh, legend, and is a, a published author, of course. His newest book is called Secrets of Old Louisville. Please welcome to the show, N. David Williams. David, how are you? Thank you, Jason. Kyle. It's yeah. good to finally have you. Now, as um, People in Louisville, of course, especially LGBT folk, mm-hmm. know your name. Uh, you are the creator, I, I, I guess, our benefactor, our donor of the Williams Nichols Collection at Louisville. What's, what's the problem? Are you the donor, benefactor, creator? Uh, wizard, um, what? All, all of that. All yes. the above. <laughs> yeah, all the no, above. Yeah, I founded that in 1982. 1982. And, um, you know, I've... I, uh, the whole community has been giving us stuff certainly over the last uh, thirty years or so. But uh, yeah, it started out kind of as uh, my personal collection. Okay. Uh, and by the way, it's a collection of LGBTQ memorabilia, documents, history, Louisville, or the entire state. Uh, well, mainly of Louisville, okay. but also Kentucky. You know, I, I think it, uh, co- it it describes um, uh, Louisville uh, LGBTQ history. Uh, Better than any other um, mid middle sized um, city in the whole country. Absolutely, you know that includes Minneapolis, Indiana, Annapolis, uh, yeah. Cincinnati. Uh, you, you know whatever has happened in the last fifty years yeah. in our community, it's in there somewhere. And you mentioned it started mm-hmm. like kind of in your living room, right? Like you kind of yes. uh, did, mm-hmm. did you did you set off some 30, 40 years ago, like, oh, let me hang on to these flyers, let me hang on to these buttons and t shirts, mm-hmm. or are you just like me and you're just a pack rat. And then yeah. you're like, well, let me get these to the library. <laughs> yes, no, no. I've always been kind of a pack rat. I get that from my grandmother, who used to collect all these newspapers and put her put them in her basement and forget about them. You know, she'd have newspapers from Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. You know, yeah. <laughs> this was like 1965. They were still sitting there. You know, so I I, I kind of get the pack rat gene from uh, her. And uh, in 1982, when uh, our community was starting to really get organized, um, as all of a sudden, all these newsletters and flyers and uh, buttons and things were starting to uh, uh, come out. And so I thought, well, somebody needs to save these because otherwise they're just going to get thrown away. So being a natural pack rat, I just threw them in a box and put them on a shelf, you know. And that's basically how the archives started. 
I mean, and that is so wonderful. And the archives are located at the University of Louisville. Yes. Uh-huh. And are they accessible to any and everyone? Who... Oh, yes. It's open to the public. That's so I wonderful. It. I love it. I love yes. it. Well, let's hop into this book. Your newest book, Secrets of Old Louisville. And um, so it's arguably Old Louisville is one of the most famous neighborhoods, if, if not the city within the entire state. And it's been the most written about, kind of most covered. Um, but your book kind of pulls back the drapes, if you will. So Old Louisville, if you're not uh, familiar mm-hmm. with it, uh, out-of-towners, um, it's a really diverse neighborhood, especially now. You, you may have one street that has uh, old old benches are now apartments, right? And then the next block over, you literally have the mayor's mansion. You have historic Central Park. It's a really, really beautiful dock, as you know, mm-hmm. in diverse neighborhood. And so you're kind of pulling back, if you will, the shutters and the curtains and kind of delving into some very, some funny stories, some interesting stories, mm-hmm. some scary stories. Um, but let's start at the top. Talk to us a little bit about um, the history of, of black folks, because we certainly know uh, Old Louisville to be one of the more diverse neighborhoods, racially, economically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really fun to kind of just sightsee and people watch. But um, that wasn't always the case. Um, as much of the inner city of what we know now as the West End used to be mostly white folks, right, David? Oh, and, yes, and, yes. and then you had, of course, the white flight. But um, African-American presence in Old Louisville goes back even before white folks kind of showed up and um, what's now known as Simmons College mm-hmm. of Kentucky, their headquarters was there, yes? Oh, yes, it's still uh, there. Yeah, okay. It started, uh, the building is still there. I think they're working on it to renovate it now. Uh, it was put up in 1879 over at, oh, let me say, 5th Kentucky. 7th in Kentucky? 7th yeah. in Kentucky, yeah. So, uh, you know, there's been an African-American presence uh, in the area for quite a while. Yeah. Mm. And you say in like in 1910, there were 600 African-American alley homes. Mm. Now talk a little yeah, bit. Yeah, what of, is an alley home? Yeah, yeah. how is oh, it different okay. from the mansions and all those <laughs> kind of things? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, back when uh, the, the neighborhood was being built uh, on the alleys, uh, they built their uh, garages, which were carriage houses at the time, to house their um, horses and their buggies and all that. And then on the second floor, they built uh, little rooms, a couple of rooms, um, and that's where the uh, African-American servants and butlers and maids, uh, they all lived. Okay. Mm. So, uh, you know, between uh, Floyd and 7th, uh, Broadway and Avery, which is now Cardinal Boulevard, Okay. Uh, there were about uh, 600 alley homes. I-, I call them alley homes. I don't know. They're carriage houses, but... Uh, you know, I just came up with this idea because there were somebody's homes. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, mm. and uh, you know, they were probably pretty primitive. Okay. Uh, you know, they might have a coal stove. They probably did not have any running water. If you had to go to the bathroom, you went to the outhouse out uh, in the yard somewhere. Uh, so, you know, it was pretty much the same as uh, in slave days, except uh, these people were not technically slaves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they just lived in the city. Yeah. So uh, I had heard for many years that uh, these uh, carriage houses had been the home of African-American men and women and families. But I didn't really uh, uh, find out a whole whole lot about it until I started doing research. And uh, it was uh, quite amazing. You know, they were all over the place. Now, uh, you know, let let me... uh, preface this, I should have done this before, you know, as a white man, I feel a little skittish about writing about African-American history because the only people that can really write about African-American history is African-Americans. Certainly. Uh, As a historian, I'm a professional. I think I can do a good job, but there's insights uh, that uh, I might not 
have that an African-American historian would. So. Some things might get lost in translation mm-hmm. and yes. those kinds of things. But I, oh, yeah. I think you've done a, a pretty decent job. I think so, too. And I really appreciated uh, the part where you discuss in the book when you talk about these carriage homes, about how many Victorians in Louisville at the time in the early 1900s really couldn't get past the idea of um, a kind of plantation mentality. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, what do you mean by that? Like, Well, you, you know, because... Uh, the. Well, take, for example, uh, I ran across a story where one of the uh, black butlers, uh, he had to go to the bathroom, and he couldn't make it out to the outhouse, so he used the white people's toilet inside the mansion. He got arrested. Wow. You know, it's, it's yeah. just, wow. just yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, people mm. still had this patronizing um, mm-hmm. way of looking at black people. Yeah. Saying, well, they're here. We've got to put up with them. You know, we'll put them to work, but we won't give them a, a living yeah. wage. Uh, you yeah. know, we're just common common stuff. Them. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. Louisville. I mean, Kentucky loves to uh, to point out that it was need that it was not a, a slave state, quote unquote. You know, but yeah. as we've talked about on the show in recent weeks about you know the, what Jim Crow and racism looks like in the North, and even though we're like we're the northernmost Southern state, some things about us are really Southern, but some things we thought we had the certain mm-hmm. Northern sophistication, but you had redlining, and you still to this day. See, uh, see the remnants of racial segregation and kind of those kinds of laws that still are around and are affecting folk now. Yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, there's uh, one uh, African American professor at the UK who has called it polite racism. Yeah, polite <laughs> racism, absolutely. Uh, so, and uh, so that that's kind of like uh, it wasn't like whips and, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, lynchings necessarily and all that, but. Uh, you know, it's certainly know, yeah. it's probably the best way to put it. Absolutely, it's yeah. Still racism. Yeah. Now, Muhammad Ali, Louisville's most one of Louisville's most famous sons, uh, who we love. Mm-hmm. Um, he has some ties to old Louisville. Uh, oh, in yes. fact, uh-huh. pr- the probably the most infamous story uh, that people love to tell about Muhammad Ali is how he kind of got into boxing, uh-huh. and that's a story that that go. The legend goes that he um, had a bicycle and someone stole his bicycle. Um, and then uh, talk, talk a little bit about that if you, if you okay, can. Okay, yeah. You know, uh, somebody stole his uh, red Schwinn bicycle, and uh, somehow he got in touch with this uh, a man who um, was running the boxing yes. uh, program over at the Columbia Gym, which is now part of Spalding. Spalding University, And yes. Muhammad Ali, who was, at that time was Cassius Clay. And was a kid, uh, yeah. A kid, oh. 14 years old, said he was going to whoop whoever that was that had <laughs> stolen his bike. bike. Yeah. And this uh, boxing promoter said, well, why don't you take that anger and channel it into boxing? Yeah. It'll be uh, more healthy than going out and uh, hitting somebody. Yeah, especially if you're uh, untrained. You might, yeah. you might kind of, you might lose. Yeah, yeah, you, you get in the, you might break your neck. You yeah. Know? So, uh, so that, that's a base, and, and that happened in uh, what would have been part of old Louisville at yeah. that time, just okay. the south of Broadway. Yeah. And then also, many, many years later, uh, Muhammad Ali married uh, Lonnie Williams, who is his, his most current mm-hmm. wife, his widow. They got married, actually, in the heart of old Louisville, Fourth of Magnolia. Yes, yes. In the house of what was then <laughs> county judge executive Harvey Sloan, who eventually became the mayor, two-time mayor of Louisville. Is that right? Uh, well, he was the mayor before then. Okay, okay, good. Uh, yeah, yeah, up until 1983. And, and then, then became county judge. Became okay, county judge all right, awesome, awesome. And uh, that was his house, yeah, it's yeah. a historic house of its own. Uh, and Muhammad Ali got married in the parlor in front of the fireplace. All right. Biggest that's, ceremony. That's a nice romantic uh, uh, yeah. situation. So, uh, Doc, you didn't know that the birthday song, remember we talked about, I remember we were somewhere. Yeah, we, the were, bir- we were somewhere and um, Jay mentioned that the happy birthday song 
was uh, created and originated here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was like, oh, really? He was like, yep. And you mentioned this in your book of, um, in terms of mm-hmm. the music teachers who create the Happy Birthday song. But ironically, on her gravesite in Cave Hill, they don't mention the Happy Birthday song because no. it didn't become ubiquitous and all over until after her death. But talk to us a bit oh, about yeah. who created the Happy Birthday song. How are, are they tied to Louisville? Yeah, well, Mildred and Patty Hill uh, were residents of Old Louisville at the time that they uh, composed the Happy Birthday song. And I, I read something uh, two or three weeks ago that uh, uh, the Happy Birthday song has elements of African-American music to mm-hmm. it. Uh, Mildred uh, Hill was a, a, a great early proponent of Negro spirituals yeah. and black music. And I mentioned in my book that uh, it was probably kind of an amusing uh, image to see a proper uh, Victorian lady clapping her hands and tapping <laughs> her feet to syncopated black music. <laughs> but, you know, there was other people, too, uh, uh, like most famously uh, Hattie Bishop Speed, who, uh, you know, she refused to uh, segregate her museum after it opened. She, she by the um, way, founded the Speed Art Museum, Speed Art, um, Speed popular Art museum, museum here in Louisville. Yeah. And Hattie Bishop Speed was also a big proponent of uh, black music yes. of, of that day. So, uh, you know, it, it's uh, something that a lot of people don't uh, know about. Uh, the, the Courier Journal mentioned uh, at the time that uh, black music was uh, weird of sound. And yeah. <laughs> well, if you only knew. If only, if only they knew it would become the most popular genre yeah. in American yeah, music yeah, uh, this many years later. Basis this, of all our music. Yeah, the song was initially called Good Morning to All. Yes. Uh-huh. Good morning to you know, mm-hmm. we, we won't. Yeah, so so uh, one sister kind of creates the music. The other sister mm-hmm. then creates the lyrics. Uh, well, that, that's neat. So where um, where's the Hill House today? Oh, okay, the the house where they lived when they were composing the song um, was uh, torn down about 1977. Oh. But now Mildred Hill's uh, last home before she died is over here at, near Fourth and Oak, and it's still standing. So, uh, uh, so they ought to have a, a, a historical marker put they up there somewhere, you know. And they ought to give away like free birthday cake. I feel like I oh, feel yeah. like every <laughs> restaurant in the city should probably give away free birthday cake or birthday cake pops uh, I think in so honor too. of the, of the mm-hmm. Mildred sisters. But there needs to be some kind of marker or yeah. something in the city to to commemorate. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 There isn't yet. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's um Halloween. It's Halloween season. Yes. I don't like scary stories and murder mysteries, Doc, but you do. <laughs> I do. And I found the story uh, in your chapter, The Murder of Jenny Bowman, Mm -hmm. fascinating. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what happened to Jenny Bowman Mm -hmm. and, you know. Yeah, this uh, is a really troubling story on many levels. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Jenny Bowman was a maid at a home over on Brook Street. And uh, she uh, was washing a goblet out when she... uh, heard a noise in the house, and so she went back towards the uh, kitchen, and she spotted this uh, African-American man, Albert Turner, and uh, she asked him what he was doing in the house. Uh, He wasn't employed there or anything, and he said, oh, nothing, I just want to leave. Well, she confronted him and um, evidently grabbed his hand and started slashing his face with that water goblet, and then he punched her, and he took a poker or a broken table leg and beat her on the head, and she fell to the floor and started bleeding. Mm. Uh, This was uh, Albert Turner and his uh, friend, William Patterson, were there to burglarize the place. Mm. Mm. And I don't think they realized that Jenny was at home at the time. 
Uh, so William Patterson came down the stairs and saw what was happening, and they carried Jenny Bowman's body up the, uh, the back steps and put her in her bed. And William Patterson uh, at one point asked her if she thought that uh, she could identify them to the police. And she said that, uh, yes, uh, she probably could. So William Patterson, who was a, a real ruffian, he was the police considered him the meanest man in town, he uh, took a um, pipe and uh, beat her on the head and um, basically uh, knocked her out. And she survived somehow for 18 days, but not before she could identify uh, the, uh, one of the guys that had yeah. done this. So, you know... Patterson and Turner were taken to jail. Um, the uh, local uh, sheriff, uh, chief of police realized right off that there was a potential for lynching, mm. so he had them spirited away to Frankfurt for their safety um, and then brought back uh, the following Wednesday. Well, by then, white Louisville was boiling over. You know, mm. Here was these two black guys that had... Uh, uh, assaulted this uh, innocent white woman, and uh, so they were out for revenge. Uh, on Thursday of that week, uh, they tried to batter down the uh, jailhouse door with a telephone pole. Wow. Uh, the, they were uh, pushed back by a cordon of about 500 police. But then the crowd of the following day grew to about ten or 15,000 people on Jefferson Street in front of our courthouse. Oh, Wow. And, uh, you know, some of them had little one-foot uh, uh, ropes uh, in the uh, shape of uh, a lynching rope yeah. uh, to their lapels. And one guy had 50 feet of rope. You know, they were out to uh, string these guys up yeah. in front of the courthouse. Yeah. Vigilante uh, justice is what they Vigilante yeah. justice. And uh, the uh, Louisville Legion uh, finally uh, came to the fore with a Gatling gun and— um, pushed the crowd back, but there was 120 people arrested. It was the closest uh, that uh, Louisville ever got to a black lynching yeah. in mm. Louisville. Now, ironically, before that, in 1871, there had been a white lynching. Uh, there was a white guy that was lynched for rape, but uh, Louisville never had a, a racial, a black racial lynching. Mm. Uh, so uh, it uh, was a really a, an unfortunate incident. Finally, uh, Turner and Patterson were uh, found guilty and uh, strung up uh, okay. legally, although uh, some people say that uh, it, it was a judicial lynching. Yeah. You know, they might have served to life in prison if they had been white. Wow. So, uh, uh, it's a really, a, you know, it, I put this uh, chapter in the book just to show that, you know, Victorian Louisville, it, it wasn't all tea cakes. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. Debutante parties. It wasn't people in carriages with parasols. Uh, it wasn't uh, finery and uh, you know grand architecture. There was a a strong undercurrent of racism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, underneath uh, uh, Victorian Louisville. And I really think, I, I really hope that someday some uh, somebody with African American studies uh, yeah. at University of Louisville or a sociologist or historian, preferably African American, can can. Dig more dig further deeply. into that particular story. Yeah, yeah. because there's still an awful lot to, uh, to talk about. This yeah. this uh, chapter is about eight or nine pages, but you could probably write a book about it. Yeah, yeah. What's mm. the most interesting thing, uh, uh, your research about Louisville, what's the, been the most interesting thing that you've discovered 
is uh, you know were there a lot were there any salacious parties happening in these old little mansions? <laughs> you know, debauchery, uh, quirky stories, funny stories. What's been kind of some interesting things you've discovered over the course of writing this book and doing your research? Okay, well, I, I think the most interesting story was the story of Florence Irvin. Uh, in uh, 1895, her son, who was 21, died at Tulane University in uh, New Orleans, and uh, she sought comfort in the arms of another man. Oh, unfortunately, mm, yeah. he was married at the time. Uh, Unfor- and another thing, she was 57 and he was 24. Yes. <laughs> so, and uh, he was married to an actress. So eventually, uh, he divorced his uh, actress wife, although there's some evidence that they were trying to gold dig this woman. Uh, he was supposed to um, divorce his uh, wife, Mary Florence, and then they would be in cahoots to grab her fortune. Mm. Well, the, the wife eventually disappears, uh, went, went off to San Francisco. But Florence and uh, William Bato, her new husband, were married for three years. Uh, during that time, uh, his mother moved into the mansion with him and started fiddling with the will. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, adding codicils. And uh, so when Florence died in 1900, the uh, relatives uh, had uh, decided that they were going to sue because there was something fishy about this will. And uh, they, the, during Christmas time that year, um, the court ruled that, uh, yes, the codicils were not in Florence's handwriting, and they tossed them out. So uh, you know, this was quite a scandal back then. Florence had decided to do this, <laughs> to write this will, to write all of her relatives out of the will. She detested most of them. So that was probably the biggest scandal. <laughs> That's my kind of party, though. Know, shoot, I mean, the Victorians yeah. are living it up. They're murdering folk, and they were single folk husband and all kind of it's stuff. They, they were real wild, yes, yes. Victorian cougar marrying a 25-year-old all kid, right. you know. So. so tell us how our audience members can get your book. Is there a website? Okay. Is there yes. uh, spaces to order? Like, let us know how we can get our hands on it. Oh, yes. Well, you can order it through butlerbooks.com. Uh, that's probably the easiest way. That's right here in town. It's also on Amazon, but uh, it's also at Carmichael Books. Uh, it's downtown here at the, A Taste of Louisville. There's uh, the uh, Louisville Convention and Visitor Center has uh, a, a lot of copies of the book. It's at uh, Notorious or Unorthodox Books in Old Louisville. Um, and uh, Or you can just um, email me. Can I say my Absolutely. email address? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you get a, a copy that uh, I can sign for you. It's Artist. Two one at gmail.com. I love it. Well, I'll tell you what, David, thank you for being with us, making time for us. But more importantly, thank you for your many decades of service. I, I, you know, uh, I take for granted even because I, I think about things that were happening 20 years ago when I was a younger person. And it, like particularly like the house ball culture, for example, Doc, and mm-hmm. how like ball flyers and things that we kind of just threw away, right? That now there's a lot more interest in the house ball scene and, yeah. and people are trying to hunt down old videos. And and so I really appreciate, David, that you had the foresight to, to think about like, yo, one day this will be important. And, I, you know, because a lot of LGBT history in particular, uh, whether that's because of the AIDS crises or because of any number of issues, homophobia, a lot of our history is forgotten. And it becomes an oral history and it's up to folk like you mm-hmm. to, to to pass that down and preserve that. And so we're just really happy that you've done right. that. We, mm-hmm. we could probably spend a whole uh, uh, 
a program on uh, black uh, LGBT uh, history here Absolutely. in uh, Louisville and Kentucky. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have you back sometime. Will you come okay. back? Yeah, sure will. All <laughs> right. Uh, again, listeners, this has been Ian David Williams, historian, author, all-around good person. The book is Secrets of Old Louisville. Um, of course, go online and Google, and you can find it anywhere. Uh, David, thank you so much, and please take care. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. Listeners, thanks, we'll, David. Listeners, yeah. we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This is Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. On the new episode of Five Things, it's Idris Goodwin, playwright and artistic director of Stage One Family Theater, talking poetry. And that's what I think all artists do, you know, whether they paint or sculpt, it's all just, you get into this thing of millimeters, where it's like, no, 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 let me just, uh, let me say, I don't need that word, cut that word, you know, you're just trying to get it precise, you know. The newest episode of Five Things, available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to Strange Fruit by Louisville Public Media. All right. So on the hot topics, um, who's making headlines this week? Remy Ma. Um, oh. Of course, she made headlines last week and in recent weeks because she's been defending Bill Cosby. But and, I, I, yeah, you know, of course, she's been defending Bill Cosby. And I, I'm not no. going to spend too much time on that. But she was saying something about, you know, 60 women. I just don't believe them all. You know, so you telling me oh, all 60, all, no, all 60 women were, were afraid to, um, all 60 women were afraid to come forward. And so, all you know, all uh. the reductive stuff. But whatevs. Um, but this particular uh, thing that caught my attention, Doc, was that she was um, on a podcast um, called State of, the, State of the Culture. It's actually a, a TV show, State of the Culture. Okay. And they were talking about a particular rapper named Little Zan, uh, X-A-N. That, yeah, Little Zan. And okay. Little Zan is like white Latino. So he ain't black. You know, he's okay. like white and or white Latino okay. uh, type T's. And so Little Zan was captured on video using the n-word he got into an argument with someone in indianapolis and was calling there you know like saying something something something, i got more money than you my end you know and so the the host and these are all black panelists on this particular show were having a discussion about how do you feel about people who are not black using the n-word now listeners if you don't know there are two versions of the n-word one is the traditional n-i-g-g-e-r which we all know what that means okay right pretty much always off limits but then there is the more contemporary N-I-G-G-A. And I'm sure y'all have heard that, you know, that's a, that's a term you hear in your rap songs. That's the term you usually hear uh, in your uh, movies. Like, that's the, uh, for lack of a better term, the term of endearment mm-hmm. that a lot of black folks use to one another. I mean, I use that term, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in very specific ways, definitely on social media to, to relate a certain context, and maybe mm-hmm. even among my friends. And so the, the, the discussion always becomes, can non-black people say N-I-G-G-A, right? right. What if you're rapping Cardi B's song? Can you do you skip over that word? Are you allowed to say it? Mm-hmm. What if um can you say my ninja? Can you use some kind of equivalent? Uh, and so Remy Ma says that she doesn't get offended, uh, regardless of what your nationality is. She does not get offended. She does not consider nigga to be a racial slur, um, as long as you don't mean it uh, with any harm. She says I hear it so frequently from people who aren't black. She says like Fat Joe, the rapper Fat Joe. Mm-hmm. She says like Fat Joe. He's the blackest Spanish guy on the planet Earth. And I've never questioned it. Mm. So Fat Joe, of course, is Latinx, mm-hmm. not black. Mm-hmm. Uses the N-word because he's a hip-hop right. culture. Mm-hmm. When I was like, yo, he's the blackest. First of all, what is that phrase when people do that? When people be like, you're the blackest white dude I know. It usually means that the person operates or performs or their presentation of self has some kind of relationship to a black stereotype. So either they're loud, 
They're yeah. late all the time. They talk in the movie theater. They eat fried chicken, um, whatever it is. But when black people say that phrase that, like, Bill Clinton was the first black president, they're talking about Bill Clinton playing the saxophone, yeah. smoking weed, Having and, getting, and, and getting, getting head in his get, office. Yeah, basically, yeah. So anything that sees blackness as buffoonery, coonery, that's what typically people mean. Deviant, I'm, yeah. I'm really, really disappointed in Remy Ma because I adore her and Papoose. I adore... Um, them a lot. But, I mean, for me, I found that acceptance of the N-I-G-G-A word from brown folk, black folk accepting that use of the word from brown folk, typically on East Coast. So I do think that there's something about regionality okay. that, like, where what region of the country you live in and the closer proximity that black and brown folks have in those spaces. Whereas when we think about the Midwest and we think about the South, um, and even if we think about the West Coast, you really don't have black and brown folks in the same neighborhood, in the same uh, circumference uh, with one another. Whereas when you're talking about hip hop, you're talking about Boogie Down, you're talking about Bronx, um, you do, right? So uh, every time I hear a black artist defending another non-black artist, but who is a brown artist, use of the N-word, they're always East Coast. So I feel like yeah. it has to do I'm, with some kind uh, yeah. of uh, the Regional. region. Now for me, no. Yeah. It's a gnaw for me because, yeah. one, my thing is, what is the the desire, right? So I get yes. the whole question all the time, like, well, you guys use it all the time, right? So, like, my thing is, what's the desire? Like, do men as a group and collective want to use the B word? Yeah. Right? Do yeah. they want to reclaim that? Well, women say the B word to each other. Two friends can be talking to their women, and they say be this and be that. But what would be a man's desire to use a word that was once used in a pejorative way, and now women have embraced it and are using it as camaraderie and yeah. companionship, whatever they use it as, right? It's the same thing about the F word when it yeah. comes to that of gay men. Yeah. Me as a lesbian, I've never had any desire to say the F word, despite my yeah. close relationship to Butch Queens and yeah. black gay men my whole life, right? I've, I've never heard... Her, I've never ever once wanted to say it. To be a part I've of that never, club. <laughs> ever, yeah, no, no. I mean, and again, when the black gay men around me have used it, I'm not like, why can't I say it, yeah. right? Like, just like I don't expect you <laughs> yeah. to be saying dyke yeah. or lezzy or anything yeah. like that. Um, I just think that when it comes to linguistic reclamation, when it comes to terms that were used and invented to oppress and to hurt and to bruise, if that marginalized group that the term has been used against uses it and embraces that term and remixes it, imbues it with different meaning, right? So the N-I-G-G-E-R word was used for one purpose, right? Bruising, oppression, uh, placement, you know, know your place, so on and so forth. When African Americans have, as a community have embraced it and used it to one another, we're not using the E-R, right? Yeah. So to me, somebody who's outside of that said group their use of it uh, to me is problematic because Absolutely. to me it's it's someone in either a privileged space or not a part of that said history that wants to somehow participate in the exercise. And my thing is, why is that a desire of yours? Now, it gets tricky when you're talking about East Coast. You're talking about hip-hop culture and you're talking about MCs, artists, rappers, right? So Iggy Azalea, even though she's the protege of T.I., she was very clear not to use it, right? Yeah. But Fat Joe... Right, so they're, they're that's that, interesting too know, about like about yeah. So, but so but, I was, but you're, you're great. But let, I want to uh, to also talk about another story out of New York City, and I don't know if you saw about the the Lyft driver and the Lyft passenger. Have you? I don't know if you saw that story. This okay. story broke about a week or two ago. But along those lines, this, there's a there's a black man driving Lyft. He okay. has two passengers. They're Puerto Rican. Okay, and there's some kind of conflagration that happens. The luckily the Lyft driver, the black man, had a video recorder in his car, okay. and he records this exchange. The two Puerto Rican dudes get in the car. There's some kind of falling out about the radio situation. 
the the Puerto Rican dude begins hurling hurling slurs towards the black driver. Calls the police as well, insists the police come because this NIGGA is doing this and this NIGGA that. And you're racist. He the the in fact the pastor says that he's racist. That the driver's racist against gay people, okay? Because the the passenger, right, okay, right, let me say that again. So the pastor who's Puerto Rican and gay says to the driver, "You're racist against gay people," right? But then begins to call, go, begins to call him an NIGGA, and again, even though he doesn't say the ER, his use of NIGGA is used in a uh, what am I trying to say? It's used in a way to like insult, right? Mm-hmm, you stupid mm-hmm. NIGGA, right? You know I'm gonna get you fired, you know, and so like, right, and so then of course, so again, a non-black person. Even though Puerto Ricans be having black roots, right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't see himself that way. And so again, no. I'm, and there's a problem with again the Africanity. There are a lot other, of yeah. there are a lot of Latinx folk who don't connect themselves to any kind of Africanity or any African descent. And if anything, there's a lot of anti-blackness that happens in many Latinx communities. But there are some Latinx folk, right? who do identify as African diasporic, who yeah. who will never use the N-word yeah. in a pejorative sense, Certainly. and will only use it with family, friends, and people who basically will not be bruised or, you know, upset Better by it. it. But, I mean, clearly this, this yeah. is not the and case. And this dude is like, oh, uh, you know, he apologizes and says, you know, there's no excuse for the way in which he acted. But then he goes on to say that uh, he's like, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm from the Bronx, I'm gay, we know discrimination. You know, so he's saying, like, I didn't intend, he says, I didn't have anything deep or anything in the back of my mind. It was not like that. It was just things I said because I felt some kind of way at that moment. So he's even acknowledging that in his own anger, right, so again, because he gets to say NIGGA probably to his homeboys and everybody mm-hmm. give him a pass, mm-hmm. in, that, in that fit of anger, he's reminded, you know, that he can also use that word in a hurtful kind of way. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm with, I'm with you, Doc. It's never time Mm-mm. for white folk, especially non-black folk, and time for time for Asian folk, and time for nobody mm-hmm. who is not black and does not never get the world as black to be used. And I'm just I'm just not with it. I mean, if I, I if I'm at karaoke and they say the N word, child, the, the, cut cut the music off. Flash oh yeah, license, I mean, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel the, I feel the exact same way. And I do. I think that um, typically when you hear the rallying cry for everybody can use it, it's a part of the culture, it's typically coming out of East Coast. And I really think that has to do with, again, Latinx, Black, and Asian influences when it comes to birth of hip-hop culture. Yeah. So those things become convoluted and much more murky in those senses when it comes to artists and, cre- you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, nah. Absolutely. Well, Doc, before we go, we had a great time at the great um, crossover podcast crossover experience. Uh, oh, you and I we were did. recently... Um, the Beat 93.1 has a podcast, uh, the Dr. Ricky Jones radio show. You and I were there last week. Yes. Had a great discussion. We did. We, we had, we had so fun. much fun. Talk a little bit about what we did. Uh, so uh, Dr. Ricky Jones is my chair in Pan-African Studies. I mean, he's absolutely great. And he's been doing his radio show, his podcast on iHeartRadio for a couple of years now. Um, and it's award-winning, just like ours. Yes. And so he wanted me and Jay to come on there this past weekend to talk about the the Kavanaugh controversy, the Kanye controversy, Kanye West, yeah. and this idea of 45 saying that it's a really scary time for young boys and men, yeah. right? So we, of course, dispelled the notion, and yeah. dispelled the notion that the manhood is under attack. Exactly. <laughs> and talked about, you know, all Kanye. kind of stuff. We're yeah, going to give it, it away. Was, yeah. So y'all, so, y'all can go. Um, the, the link is on our social media. It's in our Twitter feed. We retweeted it. Go there. It's only like it's only 49 minutes, you mm-hmm. know, so you can go ahead and download that. After, of course, you listen to Strange Fruit, <laughs> you know, listen to us first. Yes. Uh, but then you have more time in your hands. Uh, check out that um, that conversation because it was, it was really, really dynamic. So thank you to Dr. Ricky Jones and uh, Mr. 12, uh, 12, Mr. FTC, for having us on uh, the Ricky Jones show. 
Well, Doc, we're out of time. Uh, thanks to David Williams. That was a really fruitful conversation. It really was. You know, and talking so about white, white hysteria even back in the day. Mm-hmm. And even that, that story about the, uh, the, the murder of the woman, the way it was in which the white mob mentality kind of existed back then. And, and who knows oh, yeah. whether or not. And I love that David pointed that out. Like, again, you know, if, if the lion wrote the story, the hunter would have a different perspective, right? And so what it means when white historians document experiences, right? And he's like, what if, if a black person told the story, there might have been a totally different you know, perspective is what happened. Maybe these dudes were innocent. Maybe they weren't. Who knows? But it was mm-hmm. written in a way in which these black men were vilified. I mean, there are thousands of people in lynch mob outside of the jailhouse. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was actually surprised and gagging a little bit that the judge in the case had enough foresight to move them to Frankfurt, to Frankfurt yeah. in the meantime because, you know, to dispel that because that's the problem with the history of lynching in our country has been the complacency from law enforcement, from sheriffs, from townspeople, right? Because, again, these lynch mobs are not made up of not, you know, this kind of uh, uneducated, uh, you know, crazed crowd. I mean, there are people in these lynch mobs historically that were attorneys, that were judges themselves, that were lawyers, that were uh, physicians, that were the people who owned the corner store. So they were just regular everyday citizens who felt entitled and arrogant and, and, and clearly racist enough to go and break into jails and not really even break in, but be let in yeah. by, you know, again, sheriffs and deputies to come and string in this kind of vigilante uh quote-unquote quasi-justice, right? Because we don't know in a lot of the lynchings that happen across the country that were widespread um, after enslavement ends, we don't even know if crimes were actually even committed. So, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I feel like that's why I really enjoy Tales from the Hood. Okay. And Tales from the Hood, too. Check them out. Because they really kind of... It's supposed to be this Halloween, Halloween scary movie type thing, but they really deal with incidents of horror and fear and terror in black lives. So they deal with lynching. They deal with white supremacy and racism. So those are the things, right? So we don't really need ghost stories or, you know, stories about witches or this and the third. I mean, literally in our history, Real life is scary enough. Contemporary, <laughs> contemporaneously, yes. Yeah, we don't need to go to no haunted houses. I mean, nothing, right? It's right there in the historical record. All right, all right. Well, y'all, until next time, happy Halloween season. Just a few weeks left of the Halloween season. Hope y'all got your costumes. Um... Doc, yeah. you have yours. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we'll talk about it next week. We won't give away. Because, <laughs> and I'll tell y'all how I discovered Doc and Missy's Halloween costumes through a very interesting um, utensil that was in their bedroom. Oh, my uh, God. That's all that I'll say, that's, that's all I'll say this week. Details next week. Doc, say goodbye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Strange Fruit is produced by Louisville Public Media. Our editor is Laura Ellis. Our engineer is Kojin Tashiro. For more information about Strange Fruit, visit strangefruitpod.org. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Strange Fruit Pod. The views expressed on Strange Fruit do not reflect those of Louisville Public Media, its staff, or its underwriters. Strange Fruit is produced by me, Kyla Story. And me, Jason Gardner. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.